1: Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Wilhelmina Perry. Dr. Perry grew up in Harlem with her parents, grandmother, and eight siblings. Her father was a deacon and union leader, who sometimes held two jobs to support the family. Her mother also worked outside the home. Dr. Perry was raised in a Pentecostal church in a household filled with a strong sense of community, activism, and black pride. She attended Julia Richmond High School in Manhattan and continued her education at Brooklyn College. She went on to earn a BA in social welfare and a master's degree in social work. Later, she earned a doctorate in human behavior and leadership. She met her life partner, civil rights activist Antonia Pantoja, while teaching at San Diego State University in California. Over the course of their 30-year relationship, they founded the Graduate School for Community Development in San Diego and were mainly involved with social work in low-income countries in both the United States and Pantoja's native Puerto Rico. The pair relocated to Puerto Rico in the mid-1980s, returning to New York in the late 1990s. Following her partner's death, Dr. Perry found a purpose by returning to her church roots and joining the Marinantha LGBTQ Initiative at Riverside Church in New York City. She co-founded the Interfaith Task Force for LGBT Homeless Youth, and as Vice President has worked with other churches to provide space for homeless LGBTQ young people. Dr. Perry is a co-founder of the Circle of Life Celebration and Pride Memorial, co-founder and member of a Black and Latino LGBT coalition. Co founder of LGBT Faith Leaders of African Descent. She's the author of several publications related to her professional social work and is a sought after public speaker, panelist, and writing contributor. In 2014, Dr. Perry was honored with the Encore Purpose Prize Fellowship, one of the nation's largest and most popular prizes for people over the age of 60. Fighting social inequality. She recently joined the advisory board of Zami Nobla, where she'll be concentrating on advocacy and policy development. Dr. Perry, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today?
2: I'm very fine, and thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, I'm glad to have you. I'll tell you, I mean, I can recall meeting you. Um, in Washington, yes, D.C. I remember. So, yeah, mm-hmm. at a at a a meeting where the National Black Justice Coalition had, and you right. know, and I was just like, I I heard your story, I heard what you were doing, and I was like, wow, this is somebody I need to know. And <laughs> I, I you know, I follow you on Facebook, you know, and you are a native New Yorker. Okay. Uh, you know, how have you seen? Your city changed over the years.
2: Oh, my goodness. That's a, that's a question that needs a long answer. Uh, as you know, I left uh, to attend graduate school in Philadelphia, and Tony and I returned in uh, t- 2000. Uh, a lot happened while I was gone, uh, and I'm sorry to say the rise of... Uh, our current president. Uh, Mm. But as I return, I am reminded of something my dad used to tell us when we grew up in Harlem. He would say to us, we were just kids, oh, they're going to take back the city, they're going to take back Harlem, look at the houses, look at the wide streets, look at the transportation. And I often think to myself, Dad, you were so right. How could you Mm. have known? Because we were only like 10 and 11 years old when he said this but I see it it's very strange to walk through Harlem these days and see all the gentrifiers there was a time actually when I left New York (coughs) when white people were afraid to even come into Harlem now Mm. they walk through Harlem with an audacious audacious behavior and uh very much having a sense of ownership. Uh, I'm not going to get into whether or not they belong here or not, but it's just very... Strange and disconcerting to see that. And also, 125th Street, I sometimes tell people when I was a child, we were not allowed to enter some of the stores. And I can remember very, very vividly having to buy all my cosmetics and stockings in the 5 and 10 because the largest store, Bloomsteins at that point, would not allow us to use those services in their store uh, now today to see 125th Street uh, that looks like 42nd Street or 34th mm. they're no more small shops they're no more really black-owned businesses it's just one commercial strip that is you know that is disconcerting so let me just mm-hmm. sum it up by saying it's disconcerting <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I know because I get to New York and um, periodically, and I know that you just sort of see it happening, and you see that happening in many of our urban areas. I know here in Michigan, like what used to be like the cast Quarter where things happen. Now you see it's it's very it's a very different situation.
0: Right. You know,
1: um, one of the things that I was gonna I've noticed about you, like, and I noticed about other people who are from New York, you talk about how you know your family you got that sense of community and black pride from home and family and that sort of stayed with you throughout your life like you never you are you've always been unapologetically black because that's how you were raised you know
2: well so, i was talk, i was talking to someone recently uh and a person who had come who has moved here from uh, a southern city and talks about the sense of uh, what she experiences as alienation and isolation of the blacks here in New York City. And I was talking to uh, a person discussing this conversation that I had had with her. And let me say, I don't want to apologize for New Yorkers, but what I learned as I was retelling the story was that I am part of a generation of people whose parents came from the South. Mm. So that we still inherited very many southern uh, traditions and values. What it's like now I cannot tell you, you know, uh if if young people are getting that same kind of training. But I do wanna point out my parents my dad was from North Carolina, a small
1: place mm
2: with a very strong family connection uh, my mom was from dc which at that time was was and still is the south so i inherited a lot of that and you know and i give credit for that now what background. part of
1: what part of north carolina was was your, uh-huh, your
2: the, uh cofield <laughs> some people uh-huh. know it
1: well I, don't, I mean i don't know i mean i always am fascinated because my mother's family was from a place in the mountains called Cullowhee, and Cullowhee, which was near to Cherokee and all like that. So every now, and then, you know, and although my mother was born in Michigan, her, I mean, and didn't go back to North Carolina. I mean, when I'm always like, I'm fascinated by that and how that, how connected we all are, you know, where we came from. Exactly. You know, um, mm-hmm. so you stayed here. You went to school in California. You met your partner. Okay. You had, one of the things that I, I, I really loved reading about you is how when you said that, when you finally told, you introduced her to your, to your dad, he that you finally found your <laughs> equal. And, yeah. you know, I can recall my mother was always the welcoming, accepting one, and my mother passed. And my father and I had this like relationship, but I know before he died, he said one day I hope that you can find someone who will love you for who you are. And and like it was like he had that moment of accepting the fact that no, there wasn't going to be a Mister Wright. It would probably be a Miss Wright. <laughs> yes. You know? uh, and how did I mean? Were you nervous about it? Had your family been welcoming? Had they understood that you you know? But this was it. Antonio was the one.
2: Well, it's very strange because my youngest sister had said to my mother when I started the relationship with Tony, because she, my youngest sister, was very close with us. She said to my mother, "Well, what do you think about Mina?" Uh, and Tony. So my mother's remark was, "Well, I hope Mina doesn't get hurt." But when I heard my dad say what he what he said, and I should say I was married uh, previously, uh, mm-hmm. it was like such. A blessing, I mean it couldn 't have been more of a blessing and a confirmation and affirmation because here is a person raised in a holiness church, you know giving us that kind of endorsement and and they loved her, and they always treated us as a couple and visited mm-hmm. us as a couple, so it was very rewarding, you know. And I was reading recently uh, of the many articles where people throw away their gay kids, and I do Mm -hmm. have in my circle some of those uh, young people. I just wonder, how could you choose faith over your child? Mm -hmm. What religion gives you permission and endorsement to throw away your child, but... It happens and it's continuing to happen
1: now you had yeah I've done an interview with dr. Uh, Debra Watson and she was working with some young lesbians who they wanted to act like everything was brand new oh we've got the relationships we can be married now and and now we're validated and she was saying telling them you know we've been having relationships We've been having this, and um, they were saying like, well, we never hear about them. You had, I know, you had a 30-year relationship before marriage equality. (laughs) I mean, you two went to Puerto Rico to live and to work together. How do you think it would have been different if it had been gay marriage?
2: Well, Uh, Let me backtrack a little bit and and tell you how I got into marriage equality, although I know it was not a position that many in our same-gender black community endorsed. Uh, I was part of a a, a bereavement group for same-gender loving partners, and, and that group i learned of people who had been together 50 years, and I was like, oh, my God, 30. I thought (laughs) that was Mm. a big deal, but here are people 50, 52 years, and when the marriage equality exploded, uh, the whole campaign exploded shortly after Tony died, I said, you know, I said to my group, my bereavement group, you know, our story the effort to promote marriage equality, you know, all we're hearing about are young lovers, wedding dresses, wedding gowns, and the story of the legal uh, 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 benefits is is just not being played out. And I said to them, with your permission, I would like to tell our stories. And they mm-hmm. said, yes, I was the activists in that in that small group and so i i did my first uh, presentation at a temple here on the upper west side and i said you know i'm here as a black lesbian survivor of i was 71 at that time survivor of a long-term uh, 30-year relationship and i want to talk about why it is it's necessary for us to have legal rights Well, the thing went over, everybody stood up, clap, 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 and Mm. I got newspaper Mm -hmm. coverage and a whole bunch of things. But I said to myself, and it affirmed for me, you know, and I said, I had said then to people in the black community, you have to understand, this is not just about, uh, you know, what's being projected gowns and, you know, young Mm -hmm. people getting married. This is about our rights as people who are seniors and also black, people who live in same-sex families for the protection of your children, so you have to understand that, and maybe you don't want to respond to the entire uh, marriage equality campaign, but at least recognize that you will be protected by certain legal rights, and now, of course, as we are losing those rights, (laughs) people are going to understand the importance of having had them.
1: You know, I, and I often tell people that just, we've been there. I mean, and when Debrea did this, this thing, here were couples, and there was one couple who I knew who they had been in education, and they had gone as far as having, like, a duplex where one had the ad- one address and one had the other address because, you know, they didn't want it to come out, but they were. But they have been together, like, for 30-something years. Yes. But we've been yes. there. We've been in communities. And I tell people, I said, you know, the first time I saw a lesbian was at my grandmother's table. Yes. You know, I mean, and she was yes. there with her partner, and it was okay. And now here I had cousins who were of my same age group acting like, you know, well, we don't do that. But right. we've they? Right. we've been raising, right. raising that.
2: Or the gay guys that were in the holiness and Pentecostal churches and I recall the the only thing I ever heard my dad say anything against them because they went his holiness church he would say well you know he's a little funny <laughs> mm-hmm. you know which to us mm-hmm. as kids wasn't was not a harmful thing for someone to be funny but mm-hmm. yes we have to remind also our community and 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 that's one thing the organization LGBT Faith Leaders of African Dissent has been about, educating and advocating for the rights and the inclusion of same-gender-loving black people in our communities. You know, we are there, we are your sisters, your brothers, your parents, your co-workers. You have to respond to us. You can't keep denying us rights, or you can't keep demonizing us. We are here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think,
1: too, the other part that's important about hearing the stories like you and Tony or the ones that, that Dr. Watson brought out was like it's there's a life beyond the dress and these big ceremonies. And what keeps you through those ups and downs, That's the real story, and I've met so many, in fact, I have uh, some friends who last year had the destination wedding, you know, the dress and everything, and this year they're getting divorced.
2: I know, I've seen that too. I I had noticed that. I don't notice it so much now because I'm not in touch with that many people getting married, but shortly after marriage equality, yes, we knew several people, and they were getting divorced, and you know... This, I looked at and tried to understand why that might be happening. And yes, it's true that some people were not prepared for marriage. It was about the excitement of it. But I also believe that we stepped into roles. That were Mm. traditional roles and they did not fit our previous relationships. You know, like in my Mm -hmm. relationship with Tony, I can't say this for every couple, but in ours, you know, there was like a crisscrossing of roles all the time and responsibilities and someone would say, well, who's the guy and who's the the female and who's the male and some days it would be one way and the next day it would be another way. So I think that Once we got married and once we became public and even started having children and our our children interacted with the larger uh, society, we found ourselves, this is my theory, there's no empirical data, uh, we more and more fell into traditional roles. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in many ways, we were caught in the same kind of marriage problems that other people faced, and we were not prepared for it. I see now more and more there are they 're not new, but I see a, an increase in groups and organizations that are giving couple, couples counseling for same gender loving people and I think that that is very important because we have to define how we live together and how we have been able to defy roles in many cases in many uh, cases as same gender loving people and how we have to preserve. Much of that as we move into this heterosexual uh, form. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, I think, and I think too, that has. I did a lot of work with marriage equality, although I tell people, you know, that wasn't my long term goal. You know, it was because I want to have the dress. But I think that my disappointment in it was that after we got it, we didn't make it our own. We fell into these heteronormative roles. Exactly. And like you said, and it was just like, no we have this opportunity to talk about relationships and to do and to do that.
2: And no. if our kids are going to school you know we have the pressure mm-hmm. of the definitions of who is a parent and who is not are we strong enough are we prepared to to reject those notions or even if we make the decision we'll live them out in public do we leave them in public and bring them home, or if we decide to live them out in public, what is the consequence? I used to think sometime changing the subject a little bit, uh, okay. when Tony and I went out together, uh, because we were, I have to say it, we're not a couple that were publicly identified as gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I identified us as gay in our later life and then, of course, following her death. And I would think to myself, well, what is it costing our relationship if we are here? We're not denying who we are when we're out, but we are because our whole uh, social situation was, you know, with other lesbians. We're not denying who we are in public, but we can't, I can't touch your hand. I can't Mm -hmm. touch your cheek. What does that do to relationships? So, you know, when people say, oh, these young kids are all over the place gay, I say, you know, good for them because they're Mm -hmm. living out who they are. And and that is a way of preserving and protecting the nature of their relationship. Because if you're going to be sort of hidden, whether it's half hidden or all hidden, all day long, and then you come home, what can you really break all of that away from you? I don't think uh-huh. you can. Wow. Now, I'll tell you, one of the other
1: books that, that what I, I have read, I heard you talk about your partner. And so I got her book and I read it. And it made you, I mean, it really made Puerto Rico real, you know. I could, I could see parts of it. What was the decision about, okay, Tony, you know, Tony coming to, to you saying, we're going to, I mean, or was it mutually decided to go to Puerto Rico? And what were your goals when you went there and how were you received?
2: This is this is a story, and she, you know, there's an order, there's a documentary on her, and she discusses this. I discuss it also, but sh- briefly, she had been invited to go to Nicaragua <clears throat> uh, as as a person engaged in public education, and she got so enamored of being there, um, and uh, I forget the name right now, but the. Uh, One of the officials was so gracious to her and so loving and so aware of the history of Puerto Rico as, you know, possession of the U.S. that they just had an instant connection. And she was contacted me from there and said, you know, I love it here. <laughs> I want to stay. <laughs> you know, and I said to her, you better come back home because you have a lot of work to do in your own country, you know. Never mind going over there fighting the independence of people. You need to be over in Puerto Rico fighting the independence. And then at that period in Puerto Rico's history, there was a very, very strong um, Political uh, movement, independence movement, and we really thought sure that we were going back into this strong independence movement. I had said to my mom in a letter, you know, Mom, I'm going, and if they're fighting for independence, I'm going to stay with Tony. <laughs> and when mm-hmm. we got there, that wasn't that wasn't so of course. Uh, But also, we were going back to retire. We weren't going back to work. We were actually going back to retire. She had property there, uh, and we thought that... uh, you know this okay, we'll finish our work so so we'll go back there but uh and then once we were there, of course, the small village that we lived in uh, learned that she was there, and of course, I had joined her, and we were asked to work with them on community economic development, and that is what we did for the what ten thirteen years that we were there. We did many projects together um uh, But we didn't think that people were concerned, of course we knew they had to be, but you know, Tony was the kind of person, she taught me a lot, if you're going to mess with me, her attitude Mm -hmm. would be, you're going to mess with me, you better get it back, so I don't Mm -hmm. think anybody would dare say anything to us in person, but of course, in reflection, I could see some of the church groups, because there were many churches in this little village, had some concern, but nothing was ever raised directly to us, and we were doing a service in that community. We bought a multi-use plaza for them. We bought health projects with them. We bought, with the people, a credit union. We bought a college preparation program. So we were doing (laughs) and bringing some good, but as we sort of decided that we needed to leave this project to the community, uh, we moved out of the area uh, into the metropolitan area. And as we got older, Tony would say to me, do you remember so-and-so in New York? And I would say, yeah, do you remember so-and-so in New York? And we said, you know, we got to go back to New York. Mm-hmm. Our memories are full of New York. And Mm -hmm. you and I, she and I, had never lived in New York together. So we said, let's go back to New York. So that's how we got back here. And we probably would have done it anyway, because Puerto Rico had some very serious problems with regard to same-gender relationships. Mm It's a family law that does not Give protection to same gender cu- couples. I don't know how they're resolving this now, but we made efforts to try to protect ourselves, but we found it was not possible. So that was a strong motivation to leave the, the you know, Puerto Rico to find security as we grew older together.
1: Now, having been there and work and worked with community and worked with people how angry did you feel and when you after the hurricane and you saw what was happening we still know that that the people in Puerto Rico many of them are still suffering from the hurricane um I have friends who are from Puerto Rico now who say, in particular, I have one friend who's gay, and she said that she has people tell her, you know, under this whole immigration thing, you need to go back to where you came from. And she said, you know, I'm an American. How do you? What are your feelings about the status of Puerto Rico in this today's climate?
2: Well, let me say, and Tony discusses this in her book she had a great deal of ambivalence about uh, her country. She was a black Puerto Rican identified as such. She was, grew up poor. She was very much aware of the, of the race and class consciousness there. Mm-hmm. So uh, I lived with her and the kind of uh, pain she experienced in, in in being there, and she really addresses this in the last part of her book, uh, identifying herself finally as a New Yorkan rather than as a Puerto mm. Rican. That gave mm-hmm. her that got her some flack, but the identity she felt was as an as a New York Puerto Rican. You know, one of the reasons I have lived with and in a Puerto Rican community for years, even before I met Tony. Uh, one of the things that has allowed me to function and be effective is that I don't get into the politics of the island in any public way. Uh, I broke with that uh, because recently someone posted that uh, a bunch of uh, gentrifiers are buying a property in the island, BitCom people and they are planning to create a city within a city and some of the prime land in Puerto Rico that was not touched. Uh, And they are thinking of an economy that's their private economy uh, that's virtual money. And so I got off Facebook and said to all my Puerto Rican friends, you better do something about this. Don't let these people come in. Uh, But Going back to a question you asked, when I look at what's happening now, I think of the stories that I heard from Tony and other people her age of the poverty and the devastation of the island before, uh, the, you know, the governor, uh, Munoz Marín, came in and brought a kind of economic windfall to the people there was great poverty of course not the kind of uh, massive destruction that exists now but I'm reminded that the country the nation is going to have to start building once again Mm -hmm. and my hope is that they can create an economy you know that can that can sustain them they're already under bankruptcy uh, situation uh, I, I don't know you know I keep in mm-hmm. touch with my friends there uh, and I do you know get postings and shares uh, and, and it and it pains me because you know I live there I, I know the people uh, not all the people but I know you know the generosity and the help <laughs> self-help spirit of many of the people but this is a, a devastating blow to uh to rebuilding and our president has been so disgraceful in his Mm -hmm. uh uh, reactions and statements about what is happening to them
1: yeah yeah i mean really it has okay we're going to take our first break here um we are talking with dr wilhelmina perry here on collections by michelle brown and we will be right back So, you came back, and you had some good years before you lost your partner. Two years. And, you know, and and I can see that it's, I mean, I can imagine, I know as you said that you you went into depression, but you found a purpose by returning to your church roots. You were saying that um, even though your father was Pentecostal, and and I, I have to plead the fifth, I don't know that much about Pentecostal religion, but, uh, but I do have, and I will admit in an internalized bias about black churches and that they can be hard, particularly on queer people. But you found purpose by returning to your church roots, and you joined the Maranatha LGBTQ initiative at Riverside Church in New York City. What drew you to that?
2: Well, remember that uh, Riverside is a very open and affirming uh, public, publicly stated uh, congregation, and they had the first uh, non-let uh, me see what it is. They had one of the first, oh yes, LGBT ministry in a non-LGBT uh, church. So, there was a long, long history of uh, LGBT acceptance mm-hmm. and affirmation. Uh, I went into deep, deep uh, depression following her death and really questioned you know my purpose for for being here and also uh, questioning whether or not I even wanted to be here. Mm-hmm. And I decided I had, I call it an epiphany, I won't—I don't have to go into it at this point, but I found myself in the position of asking, why am I here? And out of that came um, a voice, a knowledge, a message, you could name it, People will name it differently. Uh, saying to me, "If you love this woman so much, you have to speak up. You have to affirm who you are." And so I decided that uh, if I was to survive, I had to have something to hold on to. And I remembered, you know, I grew up in a church, <coughs> and while yes, there's much negative, <coughs> excuse me, in churches. For us there was also a sense of community, a sense of belonging. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> a sense of belonging that really supported our development and our growth. And I remembered those good things and I said, "Let me find a church where I can be out." And Riverside was the church that, that I selected. So I joined and, uh, because of my interest, my outspokenness about, uh, who I was as a lesbian, I gravitated towards the LGBT ministry and became the convener of that ministry. Uh, I I would like to say that during my uh, service with them, they became very much of an active social justice, or let me say renewed their activity as a social justice ministry in the community around the needs of LGBT uh, people. Uh, so, yes, there is the negative of the black church. It continues to exist in many spaces. Uh, through our work with LGBT faith leaders, I hope that we have had a contribution in this area. It's, I think it's very. Diff- it would be very difficult to find <clears throat> Excuse me. any open... Excuse me. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm going to take a sip of water. Go ahead. It would be difficult to find any uh, expression, open expressions of hate and hostility. There is one minister here in Harlem that we have been fighting for like the last six years. But other mm-hmm. than him, I think that most churches would understand, you know, you can't do that visibly and openly. But that's not to say that the homophobia doesn't exist there. -hmm. I think that I may have missed your question. Did I answer it?
1: No, no, you're fine. Um, You know, with the LGBT faith leaders, what was, did you have like a set goal? Was it like, we're going to go into battle against these homophobic men? What was your goal? What was your plan?
2: Okay, we were all people of faith, clergy, divinity students, faith leaders in our churches. Uh, at that point, we crossed several denominations, even more so now. We have Buddhists and uh, uh that we didn't have before, but we recognized that as people of faith, you know, it it was it might be difficult for us to frontally attack churches, and I think mm-hmm. we were all sensitive to the fact that we had been raised, you know, you don't go after other people's religion. So it was a line that we it was a situation that we had to deal with, and we dealt with it a lot, raising questions like, do we we go and pick it in front of that church, mm-hmm. or do we go to that church and hand out uh, uh, materials, or do we go into that church, and when they ask people to stand, we all stand in mass? Uh, so there were many, many questions like that. I think we decided to take a less... Uh, uh, confrontational approach and to concentrate on education, advocacy in the larger community where we knew those uh, congregants uh, lived uh also then if we were going to do work with clergy and we did several things with clergy we were going to do it in spaces that they felt were safe and spaces where they were free to talk and we were we were able to challenge one another those turned out to be less <laughs> successful and effective uh mm-hmm. as compared to some of our our community education projects, uh, but yet we pushed ahead, and as a matter of fact, uh, I am doing a focus group on Saturday that will be followed by two groups of uh, working with uh, clergy, uh, because we see more and more young same-gender-loving clergy coming out of the uh, divinity schools. Uh, Mm. And they're very clear about who they are. And although many of them have gone to divinity schools and some of them very progressive schools, we still learn from them that they do not always get the content they need to uh, be uh, reinforcing of of values of affirmation in their congregations. And in some cases, they're not even let in the churches that they may have grown up into if Mm -hmm. they have declared themselves, you know, the same gender loving. So we will be working with them to develop of, uh, core groups that can support one another, also to provide them with scripture and content that they can use, how they shape their sermons and so forth. And hopefully, also in those groups, we will also get some clergy who want to, who have moved to the point of being more affirming but don't know exactly how to do that. Because we see those also. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I had a friend who went to seminary, and it was basically, um, I want to say it was she was Episcopalian, and when they assigned her to a parish, um, they were like, well, you know, we're okay with everything, but just never, don't say it, you know, yeah, you can live it, you can, but don't say it. Uh-huh. And then, um, and something came up that, you know, that she felt to not say anything.
2: Yes. We're hearing
1: that, We're yeah, hearing that
2: she, from people mm-hmm. in that denomination, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. And she ended up getting shipped here, there, and everywhere. And, right. you know, I mean, which is sort of like, it's almost like a don't ask, don't tell situation. Yes.
2: yes.
1: Uh, so how, do you work with school seminaries, divinity schools to yes. sort of like yes. faith
2: work? Well, Yes, uh, I think not last year, but the year before myself and three of my members, uh, designed a course for, uh, for the Union Theological Divinity School, uh, school here in New York City, uh, teaching, uh, let me see what was, the camera, I can't remember the exact title, teaching, uh, black LGBT, teaching for black LGBT, something of that nature. But it mm-hmm. was a, co- a seminar, elective seminar, that got credit for it. Uh, and we taught it. And I taught it, uh, I'm a social worker with three clergy. And what we did was not only to provide some basic information about uh, nature of the circumstances, needs, and demographics of black LGBT community, but also the second half of the course was designed to help people prepare scriptures and sermons uh, that would be useful to them as they attempted to uh, create more affirming spaces. And it was very, very successful. It went over very well, yes.
1: So uh, you mentioned earlier that now you're starting to see, I mean, I have friends who are Muslim. I have friends who are Buddhist. Right. Okay. And, you know, and and again, you know, often we want to think, okay, well, either you're Christian or, you know, it, it focuses all on Christian. How are we, LGBT people of faith, becoming inclusive of our brothers and sisters who are in these other faiths?
2: Well, we do, Faith Leaders, my my organization has done, uh, this was our fifth year of our annual forum. And last year and the previous years, what we did was to focus on LGBT people in other other religions and and ways of practice, I will say, and we did that to try to show that we are in diverse uh, uh, faith situations. It's not just you know Pentecostal or Baptist as we think of as the prim, uh, you know primary religions of Black people. We even found and located a woman who's a lesbian, Black lesbian who's now a rabbi (laughs) Mm, you know so that was and we wanted to not only present the various alternatives but we wanted to say to to people how you practice your faith there's tradition and there's custom and there's family background but it's also choice here And we did that because what we found is that increasingly same gender-loving people, blacks, are moving to alternative ways of practicing. In fact. Uh, myself and several clergy—I'm not a clergy person—but put in a proposal to the uh, for the Black Lesbian Conference that will be held here in New York. And one of the things that uh, one of the clergy person uh, said we must include is people moving to uh, African religions, other mm-hmm. types of religions that some people feel were our natural. Uh, original ways of worshiping. But we're seeing that phenomena also. We're also seeing things like alternative spaces for worship in people's homes, right? In Mm -hmm. in, in non-traditional type church settings in gyms, in centers, you know. So people are not necessarily losing their faith, as is reported by people in the majority community. They're searching for new forms to express spirituality now some people might say you know that's not really legitimate but we accept as black same gender loving people in the organization that and we see each year we do a forum that people give us feedback we are people of faith no, <laughs> no matter that we are tortured sometimes and crucified in our mm-hmm. in our church homes, we still hang on to faith in some way. So you know, our job is uh, in the forums also is to one, give them tools and ways to fight back if they select to stay in those environments, and two, to help them understand you don't have to remain there if your soul, you know, is so tortured. We don't proselytize. We consider what mm-hmm. we're doing, educating, right, and opening options for people, with people.
1: Now, you know, one of the other things that I think that, that, that I was hearing that you do that's just so great is that, in part, sometimes working with other churches, you've provided space for homeless, LGBTQ young people, which we know continues to be a problem. And although we we don't want to... We hate to hear that parents are still putting their kids out because they're coming out as gay, as trans. It still happens. And I was working, talking to a young lady who was at the Ruth Ellis Center, which is here, and they deal with it. And one of the things that that she was talking about was, like, that sense that she didn't belong anywhere. But then she had found a, a place that provided shelter for a young trans woman And it was a church. It wasn't, like you're saying, trying to convert her or anything, but it was taking care of her human needs. Right. And as it took care of her human needs, her spiritual needs also eventually started to open up and look for it at its home. How difficult, I mean, or or was it difficult to go from talking about faith to like, but part of faith is that we need to be taking care of our young people.
2: Well, as you know, uh, this is my ranting (laughs) that (laughs) that I go on to, uh, that I get into all the time. What is our role and responsibilities as people of faith? And and I'm not alone in that. There are many, many out there Mm -hmm. raising the same question and insisting that we, live out our faith and our responsibility to other people and to especially those people who live on the margins. Um, you don't, as I said, nothing we do, uh, is uh, in terms of proselytizing people. Um, in fact, we have to say it to ourselves all the time, you know. Not, I think my members are very clear about this, but we still, every once in a while, say it to ourselves, "We're not proselytizing. This organization is not to bring people into your church, but it is, in fact, to educate and advocate in, in the larger community." I think that uh, more and more we are seeing people of faith being pushed to the, the margins in a way uh, in the face of growing conservative evangelical uh, movements that we are beginning to recognize that if we don't stand up and present an alternative face for faith, we're just not going to exist because mm-hmm. the conservative uh, religious uh, religious movement is well financed. They are recruiting young people all the time. And what are we going to do? Are we going to just abandon our our place in society? And I recognize in saying that that as people of faith, we don't always have the best uh, <laughs> you know history. Mm-hmm. Of participation around social justice. But I think now is the time, and you know, I speak about this all the time, now is the time for us to step up to the plate and say, you know, not in our name, not in mm-hmm. the name of the God that we worship, not in the name of the uh, churches that we attend. Not everybody is doing this, but I think more and more we're seeing it and more and more, Many young people in those locations are, are speaking up also. My hope is that the social justice movement that they... Uh Uh, speak in behalf of like sanctuary cities and homelessness and 15 cents an hour because we have all that going on here in the city is that you also include the well-being of same gender loving people especially Mm -hmm. homeless gay kids Mm -hmm. that's our job to insist that they do that that they make sure uh, that we are included
1: You know, and I think that that's so – to have a young person who is like barely 20 say to me how she is concerned about those who are younger than her, who she still sees looking for a place to stay or people stepping over them like they don't do it, and to not focus on that. You know, like you said, I mean, how can you – where especially when you have the other side is not only talking hatred in the name of God, of their God, but even encouraging things like, you know, it's okay to bully them because you're on the right side and they're wrong. There's no understanding, no caring, no what. So if we aren't strong and and supportive and providing that spiritual food, that strength, where someone knows that, you know, I don't have to go there and, and, and go in for the full immersion baptism, but I can find someone who will hear me, who will support me, who will put an arm around me. Then, you know, we're going to lose that battle.
2: Exactly. And, you know, uh, people ask, are things getting better for LGBT people? And, you know, I say yes and no, because as long as those few beds we have in shelters, and there are few beds in our city, uh, are are having these long waiting lists, no, it's not getting better. And these kids, you know, I fought ever since I've been involved uh, since 2009 uh, and earlier with the whole situation of homeless gay kids. We don't always say these are black and Latino kids. These are black and Latino kids in the majority. Mm -hmm. We did a program early on in which we uh, invited LGBT youth, many of them, Uh, Some of them were homeless, not all. Uh, We taught them uh, how to do movie making with professional people doing that, and then we gave them cameras to do their stories. It was one of our most successful projects. We learned and they learned. They learned that they had never seen adult, same-gender loving people who were black, doing well off things not in the agencies that serve them not in their communities and there was myself there was another f- a member was a doctor and then there was a woman who was a filmmaker they were like oh my goodness my... and even to this day we did that in maybe 2011 even to this day when we see any of those kids they embrace us they hug us they, many of them are doing well some of them call me their mother uh, no. all kids disaffected and this you know and separated from their biological families in some way they had never seen and as they told stories of their lives They had to tell it to each other, and then we presented the videotapes with them in a public hearing. One of the things they told us is that, yeah, they knew so-and-so was homeless, or they knew such, but they had never heard other people tell us stories like their story. Mm Mm-hmm. And it empowered them so many of them went on to be advocates uh, in organizations and and different functions that they that they now carry complete school and so forth so you know my my uh, sorrow is that just with a little bit of help we 're able to uh, plug into their strengths. And give them and help them find purpose and direction for their life, but too frequently we don't want to invest the time and the money in Mm -hmm. doing this. So you know, it's uh, this is one of my really strong. (laughs) You can hear it here the passion. I think. Uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the kids really get me. It really gets mm -hmm. me, pains me. You
1: know, one of the things you wonder encore award and they call it like for second acts for the greater good but it's like it's like a continuing play to me there's like that there's the importance of being working intergenerationally because I have met and I have been that young person who said oh I don't think I'll ever make 30 or young people who don't think that they'll make you know when you tell them that it will get better, and they're looking at right here and now, right. it doesn't. And exactly. then when you see someone from differing generations and see it does get better, you can survive, you can be. And so, I mean, so I don't, I, I am proud that you won this award. But it's sort of like you are are living this continuing play, and you surround yourself with people of all generations, uh, you know. Well,
2: well, I stay I stay young with them, and I have a, a number. I probably, I probably am a pain in the neck to them, but, but I stay behind them and don't let them break the connection with me because I enjoy them. And I think that they find benefit, you know, in, in a relationship with me. I certainly hope they do if they are giving... An event, or they are getting married. I know their biological family is not going to be there, or I, then I'm there, you know, because mm-hmm. I I feel what a, sh- and I have not yet met, you know, one of these young people. I don't know all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but that I would not be proud to be their parent. Mm -hmm. Uh, they have survived many of them on the street and yeah their behavior may not be the best but at least at this point in my life you know I can say (laughs) I can appreciate uh, their potential their ability to survive you know their 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 personal strengths and some of them are so talented you know Mm -hmm. Um, I just like I'd like to take your mother, your father and just shake them <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because they don't know what they don't know what they're missing. They don't know what they're missing. Uh, you know, in December I uh made eighty three. I'm very, very conscious of uh, limitations of one's uh, lifespan. Uh, I have very practical ways in which I live out that reality. For some people would say stupid, but, you know, I Mm -hmm. sleep with my phone at night and I make my laugh because when i go to bed at night i make sure there's no dirty dishes in my sink. so i you know i'm not depressed about growing older i'm not afraid of growing older but i grow but i have a real uh sense that my life is not promised forever tony died when she was 82 um but i am i feel very very fortunate that I have lived the life that I have. And I f- am very grateful that I have had the opportunities that I have had. I feel pleased with myself that I have stretched myself beyond. Mm-hmm what might have been a very traditional life and look for experiences opportunities and people that help me to grow and expand my understanding of the importance of life Uh, my health is good you know I have to now do Mm -hmm. my periodic checkups and you know my health is good so I feel appreciative uh, and that makes me feel responsible, not to just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to enjoy my life, but to say, no, what else can I do? How else can I use my my experience? Uh, I'm no national figure, but I think I enjoy some um, uh, some recognition in my black LGBT community how do I use that how do I help others that are coming along you know mm-hmm. I feel that responsibility but I don't feel it as a pressure I feel as a as an excitement uh, and as a privilege to be able to to be in a position to do it
1: mm-hmm. okay Well, we're going to take our second break here and um We'll be right back. I'm talking with Dr. Wilhelmina Perry. Okay, we'll be right back.
0: Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode.
1: Back with Dr. Wilhelmina Perry, you know I listen to you talk, and um, I've done a lot of community work, and one of the things that um, one of our mentors talked about a lot was building a beloved community mm-hmm. and it seems that that's what what you have work at continually that's what you have around you. I know that. There have been times when you do, I mean, because I follow you on Facebook because you're always, I mean, you are up on things, you know, So sometimes you'll say, you know, I have to take care of of me today and there will be people in your community who are like, hey, okay, are you all right? And and I'm sure that just like how you wouldn't mind being some of these people, young people's parents, they, like you said, some of them call you mother. So there's a, that development of this beloved community of caring about each other and to being more than what we've been, you know, of, of reaching these goals of what we can go. I've also noticed that, you know, it seems to be, there's, I've talked to a lot of people who are from New York and there seems to be, be that sense of, of community, of congregation, of caring about each other. What do you, what do you think it is? You know that that in your group that makes you have this connectivity.
2: Well, not everybody sees New Yorkers that way, first. Of all. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I was going to say, for me, I think a lot of this does uh, come from the church background. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we grew up. My dad was a deacon and treasurer of his small church, and we were always Deacon Ward's daughters. That's my my maiden name. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was such a sense that we belonged to to them. You know, we were eight kids, but here we were Mm -hmm. with a larger family because of this church congregation. So for me, I think... It comes from that, and it also comes from this southern uh, background, where people, blacks in these small towns, not even towns like villages, uh, had to group themselves together and be resources for each other. Some were poor, some were better off, some were professional, some were not, but they had to join together in order to survive so you know, I feel in the group that I now function in and maybe it's because I weed out people who don't think <laughs> like I do. I mean I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rule that out. But I think that at least as I have returned to New York and function in this black LGBT community, I have been about assisting pl- placing the values that we work together we 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 help each other uh you know we are one community when i left new york you know it was the 60s it was the 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 uh, and i lived in philadelphia through some the height of the black uh, uh revolts and uh, something of that w- was deep in me. You know, I remember things like uh, we had to fight the United Way for, our, for funds. We had to fight the art and cultural institutions to even be allowed to. Bring our artwork into those places. I mean, and, and, and there was this sense that we were a community. We belonged together. I was talking to someone the other day. You could see a black person any place. You know, you, the two of you were the only black. You would probably go over and speak to the person, introduce yourself. I don't know that any of that goes on anymore. But we had this deep sense that we were a community. I don't see it, you know. Mm. So much in the larger black community as I do in the in the LGBT community and I'm very very pleased about a lot about the ways in which we have come together I'm not saying it not in fights but the way that we have come together and supported each other and we have we still suffer the the uh, situations of not being as heavily funded and and some of those other problems and so we are not all huge huge Huge, huge. Many of us are not huge at all, but we have come together. We have formed a coalition. Uh, we are struggling to uh, to be able to have our own uh, Harlem. Uh, pride LGBT Center Uh, so so I see it and I hope that that my presence has contributed to some of this because I remember a world where we as blacks really believed we were brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. regardless of class regardless of color regardless of of uh, origin we believed it and we practice it and wasn't just in New York it was across this nation Mm -hmm. right? You remember Mm that also. That, you know, that
1: is something I remember. Now, you know, it was funny. I was talking with, do you ever find about having to like reel in your black card and sort of remind them? Because I was talking to um, a group of black women and they were sort of saying like, well, you know, well, black, Okay. Well, you're sort of like the left behind blacks where we're accomplishing this and we're doing this and that. And, you know, because we were talking about resources and they were really putting it in the terms of dollars and cents and this and that. And I was talking about resources, not only dollars and cents, but relying on each other and all that. And they're like, well, we had to do that. (laughs) We used to have to do that, but we don't have to, I'm going, wait a minute, excuse me, we're black too, you know, but it was so like we were like the left behind ones. Do you ever still find that even with faith of, of like sort of saying, wait, let me remind you that we are black too? <laughs>
2: Uh, Not in a crowd, I circle it. (laughs) (laughs) No, and you know, Mm -hmm. with regard to the, one of the things that has impressed me, you know, here in New York, we have several uh, groupings of of black inclusive churches. Uh, They Mm -hmm. don't call themselves gay anymore as much as inclusive because many non-gay people have been attracted to the the congregations because of the liberation theology and so, but I am impressed with the degree to which I see education, formal education going on in these congregations, I I am truly impressed. People are getting their masters, their PhDs, mm-hmm. and I'm like, whoa, great, you know, because mm-hmm. still in the larger community, you know, the number of us who have PhDs uh, or higher education is still small. But if you go in, in some of these churches, every one of the members is doing something with education. So, mm-hmm. uh I think that uh, i am go back to say in my community I don't see this sense of, uh, you know, we're isolated, we're alienated, uh, you know, we're not looking after each other. The world in which I travel, uh, that's very much a part of who we are. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. if I've answered you. Uh,
1: no, no, I mean, you know, cause when you when I was saying like, you know, There are places that I go. I have to say, there are places that I go just because you can, as I said, to get my gay fix. Because it is is where I feel a a bigger sense of community. And there are some places that I I have to go into where I don't feel that sense of community.
2: Well, you know, Elizabeth, now that I'm 83, I don't have to go to those places. (laughs) (laughs) And over the years, less and less do I go to those places. I just. Mm -hmm. I don't go mm-hmm. because I ex- have experienced them the way you do. I mean, Ph.D. and all and titles and experience, I have experienced them the way you experience them. And I don't have a need to be there. You know, many mm-hmm. people don't have the luxury I have. You have to be there for many different reasons, professional, your profession, income, mm-hmm. your, you know, I, I understand that. But I don't have to do that, and I, and I won't do it.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I, I live for that. And you know what, I'm going to start to think <laughs> about that, about, about really like, do I need to be here or, you know, I mean, I'm going to really think about that. So you recently joined the advisory board of zami Nobla. Yes. If You could tell us what that is, and you're going to be concentrating on advocacy and policy development. So first, what is Nobla?
2: Okay, uh, I was very very pleased that they had invited me. Mary Ann Adams, who is the director and also a founder, she may be a co-founder of the organization, invited me, and I was looking for what next to do, and I was very excited. I just have one sentence I prepared for this, and uh, I'm going to (laughs) just read it for you. Mm -hmm. It's from them. Uh, Zambi Nobla National Association of Black Lesbians on Aging is a national organization of Black lesbians based in Atlanta, Georgia. Zambi's Nobla's mission is to promote positive aging through a social justice framework. They support support Black lesbians 40 and older through education, social networking, academic scholarships, training, advocacy, public policy, research and needs based community programming uh, I have been in conversations uh with the director uh marianne Adams, and I presented to them um, my ideas on how they could make use of the national. They're based in Atlanta, but they have a national Mm -hmm. social media network and they have been uh, trying, they have been identifying, I'm not saying trying, they have actually been identifying where their members, as people join the network, they become members, where their members are located. And, Anticipation is there will be clusters in certain areas. Uh, but what they want to do is really look at the clustering. And I've suggested to them that we might be able to use, work with people in those uh, in those cluster uh, geographic areas to develop programs that will assist them in advocating in their local geographic or political districts, also of documenting their life stories, their, their situations. Situations and their needs, and then using those, uh, jumping off from that to really engage in public policy. They are the only uh, black, exclusively black, uh, organization serving uh, LGBT seniors. There are other uh, mm. groups doing that, but they are the only black. They've already... Uh, engaged in research. Uh, Mary Ann Adams is a social worker, social worker educator, and a public health educator. So they've already gathered some information. And to me, it's very important what they have done because uh, there is still very little information on the situation of black Lesbians or black mm. LGBT people. Uh, I participated in several activities where there is substantial research on what is happening to seniors. There's no question about that. And also on lesbians. Uh, on LGBT people, but the participation of uh, people of color in those studies is still extremely limited. Now it may be, and I think it is, that many of the circumstances, and I've done done panels and speaking on this, that many of the circumstances are similar to the larger majority population. But I also know and, and feel and we should empirically, empirically uh, research it uh, to what extent our needs may be different and are more complicated or more shaped by our, by our particular uh, social and political uh, situations. So I'm excited. It gives me an opportunity to combine my interest in seniors, my advocacy and social policy interest, and I have been saying the next thing I'm going to do is work with seniors. I want to organize seniors, (laughs) and along comes the invitation to uh, join the advisory group, so I'm very, very excited.
1: Well, I'll tell you. I've got... I've got my AARP card, okay, <laughs> and, and you know, and as each year goes by, you have times when you do start to, you know, you think about like I heard you when you said, how about the phone, and 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 doing the dishes, and because I live alone, and I uh, and I think about some of these things, and I know that there are things that are unique by being not only over 50 but being black and being female you right. know so I mean I guess I'm going to be I, I might be one of, one of your questions <laughs> I mean, but, but, but it is something and like you said there are wonderful organizations that are out there but anything things that are really specifically talking to the black LGBT community about you know where are you what are you thinking about and um, I know that you know, you've got uh, you got a Purpose Prize Fellowship. I know, that there's another um, fellowship award that I saw that the was it? Yeah, the Astrea Foundation did this year, which is it's a Catherine Ac Award, which was for recognizing that many of us who have been doing this work for a long time are going into the this act, this play,
0: this right. chapter
1: in our lives. And we have challenges. And so I think that it's, it's really they found the right person when they came and found you because I want, to, I want to continue to live my life and live my life full. And I listen to you talk and I'm going like, yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, And I want to cut out some of these people who are, are, are still doing these kind of things.
2: Well you know AARP has just teamed up with Sage which is mm-hmm. the national uh, senior aging uh, uh, organization uh and and to my knowledge that's the first if not the only the first significant effort that AARP has made uh with regard to LGBT people I have been a ARP member now for years and years and years, and I can remember when Tony and I used to get insurance from them. I used to uh, send in one check for the premiums right same household mm-hmm. I fought with them and fought with them to recognize that we had a right to do this, because it would always, the checks would be accredited to my account and and not to hers, and this went back and forth and back and forth for about a year. And I could not get them to budge. I finally gave up and did separate checks. So I was pleased. I'm not saying they're homophobic or anything like that,
1: Mm -hmm. but... Mm-hmm.
2: I was just pleased to see that they had recognized that uh, that we are as same gender loving people out here, and that somehow we had to be recognized in terms of services and as I understand, they may be doing um, a research project, but you know mm-hmm. I know also that many of our people will not participate in some of these research studies, so uh, you know yes other Other organizations do it, but I still think that there is a distinct and a different need that we must uh, perform for members of our community.
1: Mm -hmm. I know that uh, there's a young woman in Chicago, Jackie Boyd, who uh, has a, a business called The Care Plan, which is she's trying to work with particularly our families because, like you said things like that where you send a check and how do you make sure that each of you get credited that we still have issues like that and she has recently started to work with sage they've invited her to come in to talk to to be more understanding of some of the challenges that our families face so there's a lot of work to be done but um you're but the, honest,
2: whole, so. the whole issue of grief and end of life mm-hmm. uh, you know where is the materials uh, that specifically addresses our communities you know we are we can be fundamentally our age group uh a group based in some faiths when and how does that get filtered into materials on grief? I have done some grief uh, uh articles I must say when I send them to a large uh uh Magazines or outlets they don 't get published, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. I still think that whole area of, of of addressing end of life of addressing how we uh, dispose of the body finally, mm. how mm-hmm. we prepare and part- have our families participate with us in end-of-life decisions. You know, that's a big thing. I recently had a senior person tell me, oh, I'm not going to tell my family I have these bank accounts. What do you think? What do you think's going to happen to the bank account when you die, my dear? Mm-hmm. I mean... Things like that, simple kinds of things that people need. I think supportive, affirming environments to be able to to speak about. You know, mm-hmm. I think we have to be doing this in our community. I'm going to be one hell of a senior.
1: <laughs> oh, I, know, I know you. Have that. I know you have. Uh, uh, well, uh, Dr. Perry, I want to thank you for being with me today and for thank um, you. I you. Mean, for all that you do. Um, you. I expect, Yeah, I know you said that you might be in this this way in Michigan. I'm yes, I am definitely. Gonna...
2: As my grandmother used to say, God willing, <laughs> I will definitely be there someday.
1: <laughs> oh, okay, well, again, I want to thank you. thank you. It seems like the time has gone by too quickly. I look forward to talking to you again in the future.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I wish you continued joy and happiness in your life. Thank you so much. And hanging out with them young people.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, and thank you so much for thinking of uh, having me in this interview. I enjoyed it.
1: I want to thank today's guest on Collections by Michelle Brown, Dr. Wilhelmina Perry. She's an activist, trailblazer, and living testimony that age truly Ain't nothing but a number. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.